Yeah, we, we applaud for that, but it said we honor them again and again. If you actually are here and you've served at any point, if you're a veteran, could you stand where you are so we can give it up for you and honor you actively with our applause and say thank you? Thank you, guys. I mean, Jesus says in the Gospels, no greater love has anyone than this but to lay down their life for a friend. And what makes Jesus so remarkable is he, he died for people that didn't even know him yet. And what makes it remarkable for me about veterans is you serve not only for your families and loved ones, but you serve the entire country. And uh, that speaks volumes. You lay down seasons of life. You lay down, like it showed in that video, time you could have spent with family to serve us. And we honor you for that. And we thank you for that. Uh, I went to La Guasara in the Dominican Republic last month. And for a week, I didn't have any signal. Couldn't really just call Steph on a whim. Couldn't FaceTime during the day to see Raj like I do when I'm at the office in Newport News. And every time I wanted to say, man, this stinks, I just thought about those people that serve. That go for way more than a week to, a, away from family where they can't be in touch. And, man, I just prayed again and again. While I was in the DR, like, God bless those people. And uh, I'm going to continue to pray uh, for that. And I encourage you to do the same. And just even to segue uh, to, to speak of the DR, there was that video that talked about the info meeting after service. If you're interested in that, it's going to be right over here. Probably start, let's be honest, 10 minutes after service. It's not going to be longer than about 10 minutes, but you'll just get information about that trip next year if you're interested. I'll be leading that as Steph chases Raj around. But uh, <laughs> tonight, for this sermon, if you're taking notes, the title is Rising Downward. If you've got a Bible and you're following uh, with us, whether it's in a, a physical Bible, there's some under the pew if you don't have one, it's you version on your phone, eventually we're going to park it at uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. But just to get us tracking tonight, to get us uh, interacting tonight, how many of you guys here keep a journal? Not like, doesn't that be every day, but you keep a journal. All right, out of those hands, how many would say you write in it daily? I'm impressed. I'm more like weekly. Like, this is my journal. Clearly not very thick. Almost done with it, but it, it encompasses two years. I'm more of a weekly type guy, right? And uh, I know for me, maybe you're like, it's a little too uh, introspective, impractical, too busy to keep a journal. Maybe you think, what am I, a sophomore girl in high school? Why would I keep a journal? For me, I know that I find a benefit when I'm reflecting on the past and looking toward the future. I find more joy in the present. And I know for me, when I write in my journal, sometimes it's just this blitz of words when I don't know what to pray. And through journaling, it informs my prayer. Sometimes I write something down like, God, this is my prayer. I offer this up to you. This is, this is it. But I'm not here tonight to tell you you need to journal. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, hey, you should write down what God is doing in your life on paper. And it's a command. But I will say, you read through Psalm, and you read through the Psalms, and it reads a lot like David keeping a journal. Now, true, there are, are, are chapters like Psalm 23, which seem pretty polished, planned, it's, it's poetic, it's, it, it almost seems like it's been edited, like it, it was prepared to be read, but there's, there's other ones. Psalm 1 is also like that, where it's pretty polished, seemed edited, like it, it, it's nice, it's, it, it flows well. Like my journaling doesn't read like that. But then there's other psalms where it just kind of seems like David is thrashing. He's in a season of life that's hard. He's going through hardships, and he's just, it seems like word vomit, where he's just like, God, this is what I'm going through. These are the people I'm dealing with. Do this to these people, right? And it just flows, and, and uh, my journal has both. <laughs> there are times, I'll, I'll, I went through my journal this week, and, 
And there are pages that, man, the handwriting is good. I'm like, man, my handwriting looks nice here. I took my time here. I must have been having a good day here. And sometimes the prose flows well. And then there's other days where it's scribbles of frustration after a long day or anxiety at the beginning of a day. And that's what my journal looks like. And in Psalms, again, we see both. And David's son, Solomon, took up writing. Now, his books, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, they don't necessarily read as much like a journal, but they're, they're things that he wrote. And Proverbs kind of has the feel of something that's polished, again, edited. Um, I love Proverbs because they're, they're like couplets of wisdom. You can basically tweet every single proverb in a tweet, right? You can retweet that all through Proverbs. But, of course, now they, what did they expand? Like the word count. You can put an entire chapter of the Bible on your Twitter and fill up my whole screen. But that's a rabbit trail. But again, Proverbs, it's carefully crafted, planned, edited. But then you get to Ecclesiastes, and it's more like he's pouring himself out. He's exhausted by life. He's a little bitter. And where Proverbs, it seems like Proverbs has life figured out. But then it seems in Ecclesiastes, like none of these Proverbs are working out for him. Any confident tone that's found in Proverbs, there's almost like this jaded resignation to life in the book of Ecclesiastes. And maybe that lack of consistency bothers you. I know at a time, for me, it bothered me. But then as I read the Bible again and again, I get this comprehensive picture of the Old Testament, where it's almost like a symphony. There's, there's moments where it's high. There's moments where it's low. There's moments where it's violent. There's moments where it's peaceful. There's moments where it's boisterous. There's moments where it's calm. And it all comes together as a comprehensive whole because maybe your life is a a steady, constant, uh, easy path. I know mine is more of an up and down, twist and turn, good day, bad day. Uh, God never changes, but my days, sometimes I need to remind myself of that in them. And I love that the Bible in every season can speak to those moments as I walk through them. There's something in the Bible that speaks to every moment in my life. God is that good that he's given us a Bible like that. But, you know, in our modern media age, like, the media would have loved Solomon, his lifestyle, right? All the concubines he had, right? All the um, buildings he built, these palaces and, and massive homes would have been on HGTV, right? He would have had his own show, whether it was HGTV or, like, MTV Cribs that they used to have. Like, these would have been all about Solomon, and his lifestyle in general would have been pedestaled on entertainment tonight and those kind of shows, Because our culture celebrates, especially in the West, a lot of his chief pursuits, especially in Ecclesiastes. He pursues wealth, pleasure, knowledge, work, and a career. And, you know, we often envy these things when we see them in the world, especially wealth and accumulation of wealth and accumulation of things. And it kind of fuels us as we climb up the proverbial ladder because we see somebody on a rung above us and think, man, that must be nice to have that thing or not have to worry about this or that. And that's what it seems like, and it it gives us fuel. You know, this holiday season, especially now as the Christmas commercials start, the the advertising is on overdrive. And what's powerful is, is advertising, it's almost like it points to this truth in Scripture, that there's a void in us that we're all trying to fill. And there's promises, Mercedes with bows on them, the next iPhone, like this jewelry that some celebrity designed, like if you just buy this, you'll find that happiness that you're looking for. And what's tricky is it's true. 
These things aren't bad products, right? You get an iPhone, you get a high from that, you get a nice car with a new car smell. It's a nice thing. But Ecclesiastes 3 talks about an eternal-sized groove in our hearts. What's tricky about material things is sometimes it'll fill that groove. It'll feel like it fills that void. But you know, the toy you buy for your kid breaks. That favorite shirt you got for Christmas gets a hole in it. The, the car you got no longer smells new. And then all of a sudden that void creeps in again. Because it's too big for anything on this planet to fill. Ecclesiastes talks about this eternity-sized void in the hearts of man that only God can fill. And Solomon, it's like he, he finds this out the hard way. You read through Ecclesiastes, he climbs all the ladders. He climbs the ladder of wealth. He's like, what uh, was his name, Scrooge McDuck? The picture of him swimming through his coins, right? Solomon was wise enough to know, like, you dive into a pile of coins, you're going to break your neck, not swim through it. But he could have slid down his piles of wealth. He could have skied down his piles of just gold and silver. It says he had so much, it was like nothing silver in his day. And yet it didn't fulfill him. And he climbs the ladder of pleasure, lives the lifestyle that's celebrated in music videos and even celebrated in our culture where true freedom is you don't have to say no to anything. A high quality of life is that you don't have to say no to your impulses, your desires. You can just do them. Solomon was able to do this because of his wealth, and yet wasn't fulfilled. Climbed the ladder of wisdom, knowledge. Probably had every possible degree because of his wisdom. Had high marks in everything, and yet wasn't fulfilled by it. Climbed the ladder of, of toil and work, careers. Wasn't fulfilled. He found them to be meaningless uses that word over 30 times in Ecclesiastes, but then it's often followed by a chasing after the wind. Now, the, the word translated meaningless, the Hebrew word is hevel, H-E-B-E-L, which is also translated literally as a vapor or a breath, but metaphorically, it speaks to something that is empty, doesn't have anything in it. What's ironic in Ecclesiastes is that he filled his life with every possible pursuit, Filled his life with more material things than most people ever will in history in their life, and yet he found himself coming up empty again and again. But what's interesting to me in these pursuits in Ecclesiastes is when you begin to look at his word choice. Because when he talks about his, his pleasure, he talks to cheering himself, cheering me, myself, and I. When he builds these huge homes, he says he built all these projects. He built these huge vineyards and thinking, well, maybe it's like extreme makeover home edition, right? That's the one where they renovated them and gave the homes away. Maybe he's like doing that. Maybe he's finding fulfillment in that. But when he talks about these homes, it's always myself. What about work? Especially us that work in the service industry. Like, well, maybe that probably helped other people, helped other people find fulfillment. But when he talks about his toil, he talks about everything I have earned, everything I have gained. It's all meaningless, this chasing after the wind. See, we aren't called to chase after the wind, but we are called to plug in to a pursuit and a calling that's bigger than just me, it's bigger than just you, and it's, it involves us and it involves God. We're created to join God on mission. We're created to change the world or change and influence our world. And if the church global is faithful in that, then guess what? The church will reach the world. But I think we so often get that twisted because we have this twisted view of who God is. You watch enough cartoons and Looney Tunes and you'll begin to think God is off in some other realm, sitting on a cloud with his feet up on his desk, 
kind of just watching everything going on on earth through a telescope or maybe some orb like Lord of the Rings where he's just off somewhere else just kind of watching everything that's going on. But the God of cartoons and the God that, that we create is so much different than the God of Scripture where he's working and he's active 24-7 all over creation. Omnipresent, sustaining, and, and active and working. And not only that, it says in 2 Chronicles 16.9 that the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. It isn't just that God is always at work. But he's always looking to give grace and strength to those people who are willing to be his hands and feet and do his work here on earth. Again, we're not just created to chase after the wind. We're created to join God on mission, on something that's bigger than us, to impact more than just our bubble, but to impact the world. When we put our head to the pillow after what seems like a full day, we're not supposed to feel this gnawing emptiness. We're supposed to feel like, man, I, I did a work that helped God build his kingdom here on earth because that is eternal. That fills that eternity-sized void. So we look at Ecclesiastes and we say, all right, I'm going to take my ladder off the wall of wealth. I'll take my ladder off the wall of pleasure. I'll take my ladder off the wall of, of careers and, and trying to find a fulfillment in that. Stephen Covey says, if the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step we take just gets us to the wrong place faster. What if it's not just about the wall? What if it's also about the direction? Because what if in the kingdom of God and in our, our pursuit of God, we rise downward? You know, Proverbs 15.33 says, wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. The wall of honor that maybe we're pursuing in life, it comes and is climbed by the ladder of humility. But you see that humility steps down. In Romans 12.10, it says, honor one another above yourselves. Philippians 2.3, very similarly, it says, in humility, value others above yourself. For them to be above you, you have to lower yourself in humility. You have to go downward. What on earth am I talking about? Right? None of this makes sense. Well, thank goodness Jesus models all of this for us in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. And that's where I want to read. So hopefully you've pulled it up over the last 10 minutes as I've talked. But it says in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather... He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. But maybe, rough segue here, you've heard of the upside down. Right, if you've watched this show, Stranger Things, I'm not going to spoil it because the way my life is set up with ministry and my son, I haven't even started season two. No spoilers here. But it's just this fictional parallel universe in the show, Stranger Things, that where a door is opened and, and the supernatural stuff comes out, and it's called the upside down. Now, we see in Scripture, Jesus comes from the heavenly realms. And it seems like a lot of his teachings are upside down. Love your enemies. 
The first will be last. If you want to be a leader, be a servant of all. If you want to find your life, lose it. All these things, like I could just see Spock in the crowd, like that's highly illogical, right? Like this doesn't seem to follow logic. It seems upside down, but God's divinity trailblazed the path of rising downward for all of humanity for eternity. He trailblazed this path of humility, and we see it in Philippians 2, and we see it where Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be greatest will be the servant of all. When I hear that word all, kind of take a big gulp, because it's not just, I don't just serve the people I want to serve at the times I want to serve. All means everybody. The people that grate on my nerves, my quote-unquote enemies. God says, no, serve all people at all times. Be a servant. If you want to be a leader, be a servant of all. What's interesting is, is most other world religions revolve around gods that want us to serve them. But at the center of the Christian religion is a God who's made it clear in the life of Jesus, who both said and then demonstrated that he came not to be served, but to serve. You know, it's one thing to say, I came to serve. It's another thing to do it. And that's what Jesus did when he was obedient, even to death on the cross. And here in Philippians 2, says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It's a big ask. I love how Mark Twain had sarcastic quotes for everything. He says, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Not only do we have a good example, we have a perfect example in Jesus Christ. And we're called to follow it. How many of you have siblings? How many of you had an older sibling? Right? I have an older sister. God bless you if you're uh, watching live or... Uh, listening to this later, she's two years older than me, and uh, she was type A through and through, organized, everything in order, studied for tests weeks in advance, crushed every class, graduated at the top of her class in high school, which I also went to, and in college, which ironically, I also went to William Mary with her, right? So we even had the same major in college, English. So I would come up two years after her, and teachers would be like, it would be recent enough where they would remember her, and then they'd see me, and you're like, you must be like her. And I'm, I wasn't. <laughs> Flew by the seat of my pants, crammed for tests, wrote papers the night before. Sometimes it worked, but I was nothing like my sister. And I was like, man, I got to follow this everywhere. Every class, right? The teacher would be like, oh, I remember Alyssa. You must be like, no, not really. Sorry, not sorry. But I, I got to follow that? And even if you don't have an older sibling, we're called to follow Jesus Christ. Follow his example. That's, a, that's an even higher ask than any sibling we've ever had. And I think we can grasp the idea of following Christ. Like we head in the same general direction as we see him taking. But to be like Jesus, to Matthew 5, 48, be holy as, as, as God is holy. Be perfect as he is perfect. That's a big ask. And it's almost like, where do I even start? What's the first step to this? And I love that Philippians 2, it gives a blueprint. It says, have the, the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Some translations say the same attitude as Christ Jesus. And it goes on to say, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't cling to position because he had so much love for people. But you look at the disciples. Multiple times, many times throughout the Gospels, they show through their words they show through their actions that they followed Christ because they were hoping for position. They were like, we're going to get set up nice because for a time there, before Jesus started talking crazy about him dying and dying for sins and being betrayed and arrested, like, 
he was kind of like a celebrity. Lots of people were following him, and the disciples, no doubt, were thinking, man, we might get set up nice when he establishes his kingdom. Matter of fact, in the book of Matthew, we see two brothers basically, like, send their mom to Jesus. And she's like, hey, Jesus, when you, you know, set up your kingdom, can my son sit at your left and your right of, of the throne? Like, they had their mama go ask for them, right? <laughs> we see also the, the Last Supper in the book, uh, I think it's Luke 22. It's at the end of Luke, right? The Last Supper. Jesus, he, he gives them this revelation that af- even after he gives the Last Supper, he says, hey, one of you is going to betray me, right? Plot twist. Like, that would catch my ear. Like, this is crazy. Somebody who's been following him for years now is going to betray him. So the disciples, they're like, well, it's not going to be me. And speaking of me, I'm probably going to be the greatest in his kingdom, right? It says, verse after Jesus says this, right? It says, well, it's not going to be me. Very next verse says they're arguing over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Like, how do you get from point A to point B, but you see that with the disciples? And it's why Jesus tells them in Luke 22, verses 22 through 27, he's responding to them debating who was going to be greatest. He told them, in this world, the kings and great men lorded over their people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank. And the leader should be like a servant. You know, in the world, we so often flaunt our position or we exercise it for our own personal gain. Our DNA is one where we want to dominate. Survival of the fittest. But Jesus gave up his position to love people. Jesus didn't cling to a position of power, but he clung to a posture of servanthood because he loved people more than position. He served people, made a difference in people's lives. He loved people more than position. It says that rather he took on the very nature of a servant. He made himself nothing. Excuse me. It says rather he made himself nothing. Another translation says he emptied himself that has been a tricky phrase historically because some have taken this phrase that, that Jesus emptied himself literally, saying that when he became man, he left divinity behind and he was fully man, but he wasn't fully God. Yet Jesus' own words seem to contradict this in the Gospels. And if you look at Paul's writing, he uses this word, uh, this verb to empty uh, four other times. I believe it's all in Romans and the letters of Corinthians, but either way. He uses it four times, and it's not literal, speaking to emptying something of its substance that's in it, but it's, it's metaphorical. It's about nullifying something. It's why in the New Living Translation, it says he gave up his divine privileges. The Amplified Version, it says he temporarily gave up his rightful dignity, because he did. Think, Jesus was in heaven, seated beside God, and then next thing you know, he's born in a stable next to filthy animals, Right? In a, in a stable. He gave up his rightful dignity. He, he deserved more than anyone, and yet he gave it up. And it says that he emptied himself by taking on the very nature of a servant. And I love how in Philippians 2, right next to each other, he's very nature God, took on the very nature of a servant. Uses that phrase, very nature, twice. We see that he didn't have to empty himself of divinity to take up servanthood. Because divinity and servanthood, they're complementary, not contradictory. And again, in most world religions, you see the deity asking for man to serve him. But God shows throughout Scripture that this humble service that Jesus gives, it doesn't contradict who he is. You know, we often talk about God's power. We often talk about God's sovereignty. We talk about God's wisdom. 
You talk about God's omnis and all his qualities, but how often do we talk about the humility of God? You look at the entirety of Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11, and you realize that God's plan throughout eternity has been from a posture of humility. God the Father. Because his plan through eternity was was to redeem humanity through Jesus Christ, right? The person of the Trinity. And that through that, Jesus would be lifted up to a place where every knee would bow to Jesus Christ. Every tongue would confess that who is Lord? Jesus Christ. Now it was to the glory of God the Father, right? There's three people in the Trinity. Again, we could do an entire series on that to try to comprehend it and still not fully comprehend it. But we see God the Father saying, hey, every knee is going to bow to Jesus. Every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. He's going to be exalted. And it just confirms the quote to me, I don't know who said it first, that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Because clearly, God the Father doesn't think any less of himself when you read Scripture. But it did define his heart of humility. And I love that Jesus didn't empty himself of his divinity to become a servant, that they matched. And then we see in the Gospels that service didn't leave him empty. Because service, it doesn't leave you empty. It's fulfilling. But I think that's most of our fears when it comes to service, that it's going to leave us empty. Our fear is that if we invest too much time in God and others, that we'll diminish our own lives and our own happiness. Wouldn't I just get busier, have to work harder? Shouldn't I just work on getting to the top myself? Yet Jesus says we rise downward, that the path to greatness is through servanthood, and humility comes before honor. See, serving fills us. Serving fulfills us. We find fulfillment in service that we find nowhere else because we see that we're doing something bigger than ourselves. We're on a mission. We're not chasing the wind, but we've plugged into the purpose God has for us. And rather than the aching emptiness of Ecclesiastes, we see that it fills us. And let me tell you, Thanksgiving coming up, I'm going to fill my belly. (laughs) When I was growing up, I've shared it before. I talked about my sister. I have a brother who's three years younger than me. And he grew about three times faster than me. And he's six foot three now. And, and we would eat because my mom could cook. It wasn't like, ah, whatever, you can have it. No, my mom could cook. She could bake. She could cook. Thanksgiving was a celebration, right? She doesn't care even these days if anybody's coming. She's still going to cook something nice. And uh, my brother and I, we, it would be competitive. Like, we're going to eat. We're going to eat good. And uh, we, I mean, we found out Kobayashi before he eats what, like 100 hot dogs. He eats salad the day before because it stretches his stomach. It makes room. So we're like, oh, we're eating salad Thanksgiving Eve because we're going to stretch our stomachs before Thanksgiving dinner. And we found out, hey, you don't want to not eat Thanksgiving morning because you would think, man, I want to be empty. But you want to eat a little bit to get your metabolism going. So we strategized. The first time my older sister brought our future brother-in-law to Thanksgiving, we mocked him for about 30 minutes. Like, that's all you're going to eat? Like, bro, you don't like my mom's cooking? Like, just grilling him. And uh, I feel bad about it to this day. But my brother and I, we wanted our fill. We sought to be filled. We were going to eat ourselves into that glorious Thanksgiving nap, right? In the same way, when we realize that, hey, service fills us, we should serve ourselves full. We should find ways to serve, not just in the local church, within the four walls, but how can I serve in the community? How can I serve those people that God has put around us? Because service fills us, service fulfills us. You know, there have been all these kinds of studies about when should you retire and what's better for your health. If you retire early, will you live longer or should you retire later? What's the deal? And and there's been so many findings. But there's one study that found concretely that retired men who volunteer at least one day a week 
will live two and a half times longer after retirement than those who don't volunteer at all. It's pretty powerful. There's an author named Alan Lukes who wrote The Healing Power of Doing Good. And he says, research makes it clear that when we persuade someone else to volunteer face-to-face, we're giving an enormous gift, much like a membership to a health club. He speaks to long-term benefits, including relief from back pain and headaches, lowered blood pressure and cholesterol, curbed overeating and alcohol and drug abuse. There have been brain scientists at Emory University that have documented something known as the helper's high. That when you volunteer and serve face-to-face with people, it releases dopamine in your brain to where you feel good. So when people say they serve and they volunteer and they felt good about it or they felt good doing it, there's science to back that up. You know, that surprises me when I read it, but should it? Should it come as a surprise that the God who calls us to service created us for service? So we'll find pleasure in obedience. Powerful. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the poet and intellectual, said it's one of the most beautiful compensations of this life that no man can sincerely try to help another without helping himself. But it's also crucial, right, that we don't turn this command to serve into what can I get out of it, right? We serve not so we can be fulfilled, but because Jesus told us to do it. Jesus modeled it for us. Jesus is at the center of our hearts and on the throne, and that's why we do it, but because Jesus loves us. He commands us to do these things. We find fulfillment in. So many of these commands, like we talked about it in the summer, it's command to to worship out loud, like in a group on weekends. Why do we do that? Like as a man, that's not like my priority number one. Let's do some group singing, right? But again, scientists have found group singing together. It releases dopamine in your brain. It gets rid of cortisol. I think that's the word. Basically, it gets rid of stress. Right, these commands God gives us, they don't restrict us, they don't, they don't pigeonhole us, they, they give us joy. And it's the same with service, and it seems counterintuitive. Again, our fear is, well, if I invest so much in God and invest so much in my fellow man, won't I lose investment that I could have made in myself? Maybe you're hesitant to gamble on serving. Well, let me challenge you in this. Spend a week or a month <laughs> like the author of Ecclesiastes. Every chance you have... Make it about you, myself. Make demands. Push your way to the front. Demand the best seat. Disappear when it's time to do the menial tasks and labor. And then step back and assess. Am I feeling closer to God? Am I feeling closer to people? Do I feel more fulfilled or more empty? And I'm kidding. Please don't do that. (laughs) When you see people putting in kneelers up here at the end of service, hey, hey, I jump in. Like, don't disappear. But I should challenge you in this. Spend a month serving. Be the one that opens the door for the person behind you, that at Chick-fil-A buys the lunch for the person behind you, that opens the door, again, that stacks chairs, sweeps floors, steps up when you see a need, not just here, every day, and then ask, well, do I feel more connected to God and people or less connected? Do I feel more fulfilled or more empty? You'd be surprised because whoever loses their life will find it. We find so much in service that we don't even expect. We can get lost in service. And that's why we have the opportunity that so many people to step into, excuse me, so many people step into to serve on Saturdays. Are there tasks to be done and roles to be played that wouldn't be done otherwise? Sure, but it's not just about attaching people to roles. It's attaching people to the fulfillment that can be found in that. You know, our volunteers that are wearing blue shirts tonight, they could have just parked, grabbed some coffee, and come sat down, right? But they didn't. 
Right? It's like in, a, in Philippians 2, 3, it talks about, you know, look to the interests of others above yourself. Each person wearing a blue shirt did that today. They showed up early to, to, to roll out the info center. And if you haven't seen that lobby before we set it up, it looks a lot different than it does now. Let me just tell you that. Stick around after we tear down and you'll see that there's work they do. Why? Because they look to the interests of others over themselves, right? There's so many people just looking around that aren't wearing blue shirts that wear them on Saturdays because there's life found in service. There's life found not just in service in these four walls, though, too. Don't get it twisted. There's life found in serving at your workplace, at your school, in your neighborhoods, in the neighborhood college square. What we do there, it's because there's life found in that. We don't just hand groceries to people and run away like, can I pray for you, right? You get to know folks. Got to know this lady named Ava who's lived there longer than anybody, right? She has so many stories. She has so many prayer requests. I love to connect with her every time I go. There's life found in service, man. This Thanksgiving season, give. (laughs) Put giving in Thanksgiving. Next week, again, we're bagging, distributing at College Square. I dare you to get involved. Sign up. If that's not it, then, you know, maybe you're busy that early in the day, we're going to pair up with Anthony Robinette, the work he does for the homeless at Isle of Wight. We're going to be doing that in the months to come. Look for that. But, man, I just challenge you. Pick up a lifestyle of service, even if it's none of those things. Again, there's so many small acts of service you can do daily. Encouragement. <laughs> Making eye contact and smiling is a lost art. But you know what? It blesses people, right? Holding open a door, all that stuff, and you'll take on this attitude of Christ that we're called to take on. So get to humbly serving. All those examples, holding doors, helping people cross the street, an old lady, grab her arm, I don't know. Wash some feet, right? No, don't do that. Well, maybe not. Maybe, you know, some churches, they make foot washing a a common part of their, their worship services because Jesus did it, right? John 23, Jesus gets out a towel and washes the disciples' feet. Slightly different in our culture, I shower daily, and my shoes are covered by socks in in these vans right now, so I really don't need you to wash my feet, but I don't really think it's so much about the procedure, and it's more about the posture. Again, it's about the attitude, one that looks to serve, because you look at John 23 at the Last Supper, and we're going to return to it over the next two weeks, but we mentioned earlier in the book of Luke, it's where we see right after Jesus saying he was going to betray, be betrayed, the disciples going back and forth about who's going to be the greatest. And it says in the book of John that at the Last Supper, it's where Jesus shows the greatness of service. And he takes the towel and he begins to wash their feet. And again, we'll go into the deeper significance of this passage in coming weeks. But you got to ask, how many of the disciples realize, man, I just missed an opportunity to serve. And now I got the Savior of the world Washing my feet. Every single one of them missed that opportunity. They sought position. They sought honor. But honor hides behind humility. Many seek honor and never find it because of this. Jesus modeled perfectly Proverbs 15, 33, where humility comes before honor. And it's not just here in John 23. We see it in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. When we serve, we don't lose. Jesus gained, we gain. It's the same for us. That mood music? Oh, I thought I was about to get some worship music in the background because I'm about to tell a story. There's a story. I, th- I mean, we could put a soundtrack, but it says an elderly man and his wife, they came in from the rain in a small hotel in Philly. Hoping to get shelter for the night, they approached the front desk only to find out that the hotel was booked. 
However, the clerk, a friendly man with a winning smile, said he couldn't send them out at 1 a.m. and offered that they stay in his room. They declined, but he insisted and, and he said he would make do. The next morning after they stayed in his room and paid the bill, the elderly man said to the clerk, you're an exceptional man. Finding people who are both friendly and helpful is rare these days. You're the kind of manager who should be the boss of the best hotel in the U.S. Maybe someday I'll build one for you. So then two years passed. The clerk was still managing the same hotel when he received a letter from the old man recounting the rainy night and asking him to pay him a visit. Enclosed was a round-trip ticket to New York City. Now, the old man met him in New York and led him to the corner of 5th Avenue and 34th Street. He then pointed to a great reddish building, a virtual palace shooting into the sky. He said, that, he said, is the hotel I'd like you to manage. The old man's name was William Waldorf Astoria, and the big structure was the original Waldorf Astoria Hotel. The clerk who became its first manager was George C. Bolt, and his simple act of sacrificial service led him to becoming the first manager of the world's most glamorous hotel. You know, when we serve, we're not left empty. We might not have a story like this, but again, we don't serve for personal gain here in this life. We serve because Christ told us to, Christ modeled it, and he calls us to it. If I could have the worship team come up, again, Christ came not to be served, but to serve. And it's one thing to say it, but again, he served and became obedient even to the cross. So the question, just as we reflect and seek to apply, man, when I show up places, do I look to be served? Or do I look to serve? When I show up at church, do I look to be served or do I look to serve? Men, when we come home from a long day's work and we're tired, our wife's had the kids, do we look to serve or be served? What's our perspective? When we have interactions with people, are we more often the host or are we more often the guest? They're just questions we can ask. Do I consume but never serve or partake in creative service? Because Ecclesiastes, and the life of Jesus Christ, they show two ends of this dichotomy, two sides of this coin, and there's life only found on one end of that spectrum. We see in Ecclesiastes that a life lived and pursued only for myself, and me, myself, and I is an empty one. But Jesus lived a full life, one full of service, one full of serving people. So let's live a life that Jesus calls us to, a life of service. And let's be serious. Again, it's not about the permanent position as much as it's about the posture. Steph and I are going on a cruise in December, and I'm looking forward to it. They're going to pull out the chair for me. They're going to lay a napkin on my lap. We're going to get served, and I'm not going to feel bad for a week, right? But it's not about the position so much as just this posture, attitude. When you go about life, your day-to-day, week-to-week, are you looking to serve or are you looking to be served? We look most like Jesus when we're looking to serve because he came not to be served, but to serve. We're called in Philippians 2 to take on the heart of Christ and this attitude of a servant. So don't throw in the towel on service because you think the risk is too high. It's too big of a gamble. Am I going to get a return on investment? But pick up your towel like Christ did. Find ways to serve. Not as a burden that taxes us until we're empty, but it's a blessing that fills us. But again, we don't do it with that as the primary concern. We do it because Jesus calls us to it. Jesus modeled it. And because Jesus lived this life of service, 
again, it says in those latter verses that we didn't dig deep into tonight, but I've mentioned it before, where God gives him the place of highest honor. That in the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and on earth and beneath the earth to the glory of God the Father. It's another reason why we worship. It's another reason why we're going back into worship now so we can actively bend our knee, bend our heart to Jesus Christ. So come on, if I could have everybody stand, we're going to do that just now. We're going to go back into worship. But maybe you just look at your life and your heart's not bent. Your knee's not bent. Maybe there's just something that, be it a habit, something that's happened to you, happening with you, your family, you as an individual that, man, it just feels like you're in the waiting room. You're not in the presence of God. Whatever that is, I'd love to pray for you. I'm here. The Hiltons are in the back corner. They'd love to pray for you. But let's not let anything keep us. One, from the presence of God, and two, from in his presence, bowing our hearts, confessing, Jesus Christ, your Lord of lords, your King of kings. I know you're Lord and King of the universe, but God be Lord and King of my heart. Shape my heart, shape my thoughts, shape my perspective. Give me the heart, the attitude, and the mindset of your son. It doesn't come naturally, but it comes through his Holy Spirit in us, God. So I pray that as we worship, God, you would fill us with your spirit. Fill us with the attitude of Christ. God, we ask that in Jesus' name we step into worship.